Section 135, Introduction. As far as the dimensions of the Doctrine and Covenants are concerned, Section 133 was actually designated as the appendix or the final section of the book. But since it was sealed by the blood of the Prophet Joseph Smith, it seemed appropriate that this final sacred seal should be placed upon this inspired scripture. And therefore, John Taylor was the appropriate apostle to compose it, and this is section 135. Both John Taylor and Willard Richards were witnesses to the murder of Joseph Smith. John Taylor was shot several times and fell to the floor, but he saved his life by rolling under the bed. He was therefore assigned to write the official declaration of the church concerning Joseph Smith's assassination. We should mention that the effort to destroy the prophet came from two directions. One was from the apostate conspirators inside the church, and the other was from the Gentile mobs outside the church. It will be recalled that from the moment the governor of Missouri learned that the president of the United States had rejected the plea of the saints, a plot was concocted in Missouri by the enemies of the church to extradite Joseph Smith back to Missouri as an escaped fugitive. Of course, the governor of Missouri could not extradite the prophet without the consent of the governor of Illinois, where Joseph was living and the Illinois governor need not sign the extradition order unless he felt certain Joseph would receive a fair trial. Anyone acquainted with the treatment the Mormons had received in Missouri would realize that if Joseph were ever handed over to the governor of Missouri, it would be a virtual death sentence. Therefore, he was shocked when he learned that Governor Ford of Illinois was also influenced by the refusal of the President of the United States to intervene on behalf of the Mormons. Therefore, the professional politicians began banding together. Governor Ford readily conspired with the governor of Missouri and agreed to have Joseph Smith extradited to the state of Missouri for trial. The governor of Missouri eagerly responded to Ford's friendly gesture and sent two officials up to Nauvoo to arrest Joseph. Instead of following established legal procedure, however, they attempted to kidnap Joseph and drag him off to Missouri without any hearing. Joseph appealed to the people of Illinois to rescue him, which they did, and Joseph returned to Nauvoo and was welcomed with a glorious celebration when he arrived. Shortly afterwards, in the spring of 1844, Joseph learned that around 200 apostates in Nauvoo had secretly banded together and taken an oath to have the prophet murdered. What was even more shocking was the fact that one of the leaders of this new conspiracy was William Law, second counselor in the first presidency of the church. These apostates decided that the first step would be to arouse the people in surrounding communities against the prophet as well as the church. They therefore set up a press and published a paper called the Expositor. Copies of that paper still exist, and it was filled with outrageous lies that would provoke mobs to have Joseph arrested and attack Nauvoo by burning it to the ground. When Nauvoo obtained its charter from the state, it tried to safeguard against mobs 
by providing that any paper attempting to provoke violence would be declared a public nuisance and destroyed. Therefore, as soon as the inflammatory expositor was published, it was declared a public nuisance by the city council and order destroyed. There was an immediate hue and cry that Joseph Smith and the city council had violated the freedom of the press. The fact that the expositor advocated violence and insurrection was widely defended because they claimed it was based on things which were true. Even former members of the church claimed they were true. Nevertheless, it was known that in certain cases the freedom of speech could be restricted. The courts had cited the example of a prankster who shouted fire in a crowded theater when there was no fire. The prankster would excuse his conduct on the ground that he was merely exercising his freedom of speech. However, the courts had upheld the ordinance against such pranks on the ground that it resulted in a riot and having some people trampled to death. But in spite of such legal precedents, the non-Mormon public and apostate members of the church swore that a sacred constitutional right had been violated. Mobs began forming in surrounding communities, and they threatened to march on Nauvoo and burn it down if Joseph Smith was not arrested and punished. In the hopes of placating the public fury and saving Nauvoo from assault, Joseph Smith decided to absent himself by fleeing to the West. He wanted Hiram to stay behind to guide the church, but Hiram wanted to be with his younger brother to protect him. With both of them gone, perhaps things would cool down and allow the temple to be completed. Joseph and Hiram therefore bade farewell to their families and took a small boat which some of the brethren paddled across the Mississippi River. They were going to Cincinnati and planned to wait there until their families could join them. But they were barely across the river when Governor Ford announced that he would guarantee the safety of Joseph Smith if he would surrender to the governor at the county seat of Carthage, Illinois, just 20 miles away. The governor not only guaranteed to protect Joseph, but to ensure him a fair trial. Joseph's wife, Emma, believed the governor and sent a courier across the river to plead with Joseph to return. She felt Joseph could trust the governor to protect him, and after the truth came out at the trial, she felt everything would quiet down. Reluctantly, Joseph returned, and both he and Hiram surrendered themselves as Governor Ford had requested. However, Joseph had no illusion about what to expect. He said, quote, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, and I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward all men. I shall die innocent, and it shall yet be said of me, he was murdered in cold blood. And this is from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 135, verse 4. When Joseph and the members of the city council turned themselves over to the Carthage constable, they were amazed that they were not being merely charged with the destruction of the expositor press, but with treason against the state of Illinois. They had hoped to be freed immediately from the original charge by a writ of habeas corpus. However, there is no habeas corpus allowed for a charge of treason. The so-called treason was based on the fact that the Nauvoo Legion had been called out against the mob militia when they threatened to attack Nauvoo. 
Early the next morning, which was June the 27th, 1844, the governor called the state troops together and gave an extremely inflammatory talk against the alleged crimes of Joseph and Hiram. He then went to the jail and ordered these two prisoners to follow him to the town public square, where he began to put them on exhibit and introduce them to many of the soldiers. The mob militia reacted as one might have expected. They cursed the prophet and his brother to his face, and some shouted out in the presence of the governor that both men should be shot. The governor overlooked this atrocious behavior and returned Joseph and Hiram to the Carthage jail. The crisis at Carthage occurred around 5 p.m. One of the prisoners looked out of the window and saw a mob of about a hundred men charging the entrance to the jail. What happened in the next two minutes is described as follows. The mob encircled the jail and some of them rushed by the guards up the flight of the stairs and tried to burst open the door where the prisoners were confined. It was an upper room. Joseph and his friends sprang against the door to hold it as the bullets whizzed up the stairway. One bullet came through the door, hitting Hiram, and he fell to the floor, exclaiming, I am a dead man. As he fell, a bullet fired from a gun on the outside pierced his left side. Then another bullet from the door entered his head, while a fourth bullet entered his left leg. Hiram was dead. Bullets poured into the room from every direction, and many of them lodged in the ceiling. When Hiram fell, Joseph exclaimed, Oh, dear brother Hiram! Joseph knew that the mob would not be satisfied until they also had taken his life. Realizing that he might save the lives of his friends Willard Richards and John Taylor, if he could just get out of the room, Joseph turned from the door and sprang into the open window. Two bullets fired from the door entered his back, and one fired from the outside entered his chest as he fell out of the window and into the hands of his murderers, exclaiming, O Lord, my God! John Taylor was wounded in several places as he fell to the floor and rolled under the bed. Dr. Richards, however, remained unhurt. When Joseph fell out of the window, a cry went up, quote, He's leaped the window, unquote and the mob on the stairs and in the entry ran out. Dr. Richards then took the wounded John Taylor under his arm and carried him across the hall into the inner dungeon room for safety. While Dr. Richards and John Taylor were in this inner prison room, some of the mob rushed up the stairs again, but they found only the dead body of Hiram. Then a loud cry, "'The Mormons are coming!' was heard which caused the whole murderous mob to flee into the woods. Unquote. This is from a book by Norman Fisher, Portrait of a Prophet, pages 219 to 220. In order to provide an official statement by the church, John Taylor wrote up the following statement as soon as he had recovered sufficiently to do so. This inspired declaration became section 135 of the Doctrine and Covenants, John Taylor wrote, To seal the testimony of this book and the Book of Mormon, we announce the martyrdom of Joseph Smith the prophet and Hiram Smith the patriarch. They were shot in Carthage jail on the 27th of June, 1844, about 5 o'clock p.m., 
by an armed mob, painted black, of from 150 to 200 persons. Hiram was shot first and fell calmly, exclaiming, I am a dead man. Joseph leaped from the window and was shot dead in the attempt, exclaiming, O Lord, my God! They were both shot after they were dead, in a brutal manner, and both received four balls. Notice that both Joseph and Hiram were shot after they were already dead. John Taylor and Willard Richards, two of the twelve, were the only persons in the room at the time. The former was wounded in a savage manner with four balls, but has since recovered. The latter, through the providence of God, escaped without even a hole in his robe. It was indeed remarkable that Dr. Willard Richards escaped unscathed. He was a very large man and right in the thick of the fray. Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more save Jesus only for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. In the short space of twenty years, he has brought forth the Book of Mormon, which he translated by the gift and power of God, and has been the means of publishing it on two continents, has sent the fullness of the everlasting gospel which it contained to the four quarters of the earth, has brought forth the revelations and commandments which compose this book of doctrine and covenants, and many other wise documents and instructions for the benefit of the children of men, gathered many thousands of the Latter-day Saints, founded a great city, and left a fame and name that cannot be slain. He lived great, and he died great in the eyes of God and his people, and like most of the Lord's anointed in ancient times, has sealed his mission and his works with his own blood, and so has his brother Hiram. In life they were not divided, and in death they were not separated. It appears obvious that John Taylor wanted the whole world to know that an inspired and brilliant prophet had been slain. When Joseph went to Carthage to deliver himself up to the pretended requirements of the law, two or three days previous to his assassination, he said, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards all men. I shall die innocent, and it shall yet be said of me, he was murdered in cold blood. The same morning after Hiram had made ready to go, shall it be said to the slaughter? Yes, for so it was. He read the following paragraph near the close of the twelfth chapter of Ether in the Book of Mormon and turned down the leaf upon it. It is obvious that Joseph knew he would be a martyr. And mark this verse, because Joseph knew this scripture applied to himself as well as to the prophet Ether. And it came to pass that I prayed unto the Lord that he would give unto the Gentiles grace, that they might have charity. And it came to pass that the Lord said unto me, If they have not charity, it mattereth not unto thee, thou hast been faithful. Wherefore, thy garments shall be made clean. And because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong. 
even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my Father. And now I bid farewell unto the Gentiles, yea, and also unto my brethren whom I love, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ, where all men shall know that my garments are not spotted with your blood. The testators are now dead, and their testament is in force. It had been typical of the prophets down through the ages to seal their testimony with their blood. Now Joseph's testament was in full force and effect. He had sealed his testimony by giving his life just as many of the prophets had done in the past. Hiram Smith was 44 years old in February 1844, and Joseph Smith was 38 in December 1843 and henceforward their names will be classed among the martyrs of religion, and the reader in every nation will be reminded that the Book of Mormon and this Book of Doctrine and Covenants of the Church cost the best blood of the nineteenth century to bring them forth for the salvation of a ruined world, and that if the fire can scathe the green tree for the glory of God, how easy it will burn up the dry trees to purify the vineyard of corruption. They lived for glory, they died for glory, and glory is their eternal reward. From age to age shall their names go down to posterity as gems for the sanctified. This is a noble tribute to Joseph and Hiram by John Taylor, who would one day be the president of the church himself. They were innocent of any crime, as they had often been proved before, and were only confined in jail by the conspiracy of traitors and wicked men. And their innocent blood on the floor of Carthage jail is a broad seal affixed to Mormonism that cannot be rejected by any court on earth and their innocent blood on the escutcheon of the state of Illinois, with the broken faith of the state as pledged by the governor, is a witness to the truth of the everlasting gospel that all the world cannot impeach. And their innocent blood on the banner of liberty and on the Magna Carta of the United States is an ambassador for the religion of Jesus Christ, that will touch the hearts of honest men among all nations, and their innocent blood, with the innocent blood of all the martyrs under the altar that John saw, will cry unto the Lord of hosts till he avenges that blood on the earth. Amen. Four times in this verse John Taylor emphasizes that they were innocent of any crime, John Taylor emphasizes that the innocent blood of Joseph and Hiram will mingle with that of the ancient martyrs seen by John the Revelator in vision. He closes by saying that the blood of these martyrs will, quote, cry unto the Lord of hosts until God avenges their blood here on earth, unquote. This brings us to the close of the noble life of Joseph and Hiram Smith and the end of section 135. Section 136, Introduction Within two years after the murder of Joseph Smith, the members of the church in Illinois realized that they would suffer the same fate unless they fled to the West. 
For many years, the leaders of the church had known that eventually the body of the church would have to make a massive migration to the Rocky Mountains. As Brigham Young later said, quote, I did not devise this great scheme to send the people to these mountains. Joseph Smith contemplated the move for years before it took place, but he could not get here. That's in the Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 41. During Joseph Smith's 14 years as head of the church, it is amazing how many times he spoke about the church going into the tops of the mountains. For example, in 1834, Wilfred Woodruff attended a meeting where all of the priesthood in Kirtland were assembled. Wilfred Woodruff was present and said, quote, That was the first time I ever saw Oliver Cowdery or heard him speak. The first time I ever saw Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and the two Pratts and Orson Hyde and many others. It was at this meeting that Joseph made a remarkable statement. Remember the church was only four years old when Joseph said to this small gathering of early converts, quote, I want to say to you before the Lord that you know no more concerning the destinies of this church and kingdom than a babe upon its mother's lap. You don't comprehend it. It's only a little handful of priesthood you see here tonight. But this church will fill North and South America. It will fill the Rocky Mountains. There will be tens of thousands of Latter-day Saints who will be gathered in the Rocky Mountains, and there they will open the door for the establishing of the gospel among the Lamanites. Joseph Smith then continued, This people will go into the Rocky Mountains, and there they will build temples to the Most High. They will raise up a posterity there, and the Latter-day Saints who dwell in these mountains will stand in the flesh until the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man will come to them while in the Rocky Mountains. This is quoted by President Wilford Woodruff at the General Conference April 8, 1898, on page 57. It was Wilford Woodruff who had developed a sort of shorthand by which he could copy down the statements of the Prophet Joseph. Two years later, in 1836, Lorenzo Dow Young received a healing blessing from Hiram Smith, and later, Elder Dow Young wrote, quote, Brother Hiram led, the Spirit rested mightily upon him, and he was full of blessings and prophecy. He said I should regain my health and live to go with the saints into the bosom of the Rocky Mountains to build up a place there. That is in the Doctrine and Covenants Compendium by Sidney B. Sperry, page 743. As you recall, after the church was driven out of Missouri, Joseph established Nauvoo in Illinois and laid the foundation for a magnificent new temple on April 6, 1841. Nevertheless, on August 6, 1842, Joseph made the following remarkable statement, which no doubt surprised the more recent converts to the church when he said, quote, I prophesied that the saints would continue to suffer much affliction and would be driven to the Rocky Mountains. Many would apostatize. Others would be put to death by our persecutors or lose their lives in consequence of exposure or disease. And some of you will live to go and assist in making settlements and building cities and see the saints become a mighty people in the midst of the Rocky Mountains. 
Now, that's a quote from the History of the Church, Volume 5, page 85. Later, we find Anson Call describing an inspiring occasion at Montrose, Ohio, when Joseph Smith beheld a vision of the Rocky Mountains where the saints would make it their destination. Speaking of the prophet Joseph, he said, quote, There was a force and power in his exclamation of which the following is but a faint echo. He said, Oh, the beauty of those snow-capped mountains, the cool, refreshing streams that are running down through these mountain gorges. Then he gazed in another direction, as if there was a change of locality, and said, Oh, the scenes that the people will pass through, the dead that will lie between here and there. Then turning in another direction, as if the scene had again changed, he said, Oh, the apostasy that will take place before my brethren reach that land. But the priesthood shall prevail over the enemies, triumph over the devil, and be established upon the earth, never more to be thrown down. That is cited by Preston Nibley in Joseph Smith the Prophet, page 414. The astonishing thing about all of this is that Joseph had all of this in his mind when he crossed the Mississippi with Hiram to flee toward the west on June the 24th, 1844. But when the governor guaranteed the safety of Joseph and Hiram if they would surrender, the prophet was induced by his wife and friends to return. Joseph did so, but as we've already seen, he knew he would lose his life. After Joseph's murder, the apostles knew that before long they also would be forced to flee, but they hoped to finish the temple before that happened. As it turned out, they were actually in a state of flight when they put the finishing touches on the temple and labored by day and by night to give over 5,300 members of the church their temple endowments. This occurred in a matter of months between December the 10th, 1845, and the early months of 1846 when the saints were evicted. Those statistics are taken from the Bibital Nauvoo Temple by Richard O'Cowan in the Regional Studies on LDS History of Illinois, page 121. During the last few weeks the temple was open, some of the leaders had to be sent back to Nauvoo from across the river because Brigham Young had received instructions from the Lord that these valiant captains of the Pioneer Company should receive their second endowments. Finally, as the approaching storm struck a crescendo of arson, kidnappings, floggings, rapine, and total threatened destruction, Brigham Young ordered the complete evacuation of Nauvoo. The season was winter's worst. The month of February 1846 found the Mormons in full flight toward the unknown west of the setting sun. Behind them lay the ravaged city, soon to decay and go back to the swamp. Before them lay the sweeping prairies, and after that the deserts, mountains, sagebrush, and savages of America's unconquered west. To wait out the bitter winter and give the scattered saints a chance to pull themselves together, Brigham Young set up winter quarters at Council Bluffs, Iowa, before making this last great drive into the valleys of the Rocky Mountains. 
Brigham Young received the word of the Lord by way of instruction as they prepared to navigate across the wilderness and reach the valley of the Great Salt Lake by July of 1847. Here is what the Lord had to say. And this brings us to the text of section 136. The word and will of the Lord concerning the camp of Israel in their journeyings to the west. Although this section was given to Brigham Young, the Savior wanted the saints to know that it expressed the will of the Lord concerning this last great struggle to achieve freedom and peace. Let all the people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those who journey with them be organized into companies with a covenant and promise to keep all the commandments and statutes of the Lord our God. The saints were told to organize precisely as ancient Israel was organized, and that is described in Deuteronomy 1 and 15. They were to be divided into companies. Furthermore, they were to enter into a covenant that they would faithfully obey the commandments of God. Let the companies be organized with captains of hundreds, captains of fifties, and captains of tens, with a president and his two counselors at their head, under the direction of the twelve apostles. So there would be no misunderstanding. The number in each company was designated by the Lord, just as he had with Moses. There was to be a captain or a bishop over each company of a hundred families, which were to be divided into two companies of fifty families. The two captains of fifty acted as counselors to the captain over the hundred. The company of a hundred was also to be divided into tens, with captains over them, to facilitate the management of God's people. All of the groups of one hundred families were to be under the quorum of the twelve apostles, just as the families in ancient Israel were under the council in charge of the twelve tribes. And this shall be our covenant, that we will walk in all the ordinances of the Lord. Furthermore, every family was to enter a covenant with the other families and with God that they would walk in all the ordinances of the Lord. Let each company provide themselves with all the teams, wagons, provisions, clothing, and other necessaries for the journey that they can. Each company was to provide itself with all the essentials for the journey. When the companies are organized, let them go to with their might to prepare for those who are to tarry. The leading companies were to, quote, go with their might, unquote, and prepare the roadway and crops for the benefit of those who would follow. Let each company, with their captains and presidents, decide how many can go next spring. Then choose out a sufficient number of able-bodied and expert men to take teams, seeds, and farming utensils, to go as pioneers to prepare for putting in spring crops. Let each company bear an equal proportion according to the dividend of their property in taking the poor, the widows, the fatherless, and the families of those who have gone into the army, that the cries of the widow and the fatherless come not up into the ears of the Lord against this people, in this verse, the Lord places the responsibility on each company to decide which families would be the pioneers to go first 
and make certain that they had the most able-bodied men with experience and expert capacity would be the pioneers, so to speak, and take team seeds and farming utensils to prepare the roadway and crops so that in the following spring the poor and weaker companies could have the advantage of these preparations as they followed in the pathway of the original pioneers. Let each company prepare houses and fields for raising grain for those who are to remain behind this season. And this is the will of the Lord concerning his people. The Lord also wanted the later companies to have houses and fields which they could in turn leave for the use of others who would follow. Let every man use all his influence and property to remove this people to the place where the Lord shall locate a stake of Zion. And if ye do this with a pure heart, in all faithfulness, ye shall be blessed. You shall be blessed in your flocks, and in your herds, and in your fields, and in your houses, and in your families. The Lord wanted these companies of church members to labor with all diligence to establish themselves in the mountains, where they could be organized into a stake of Zion. The object of the Lord is to bless the faithful saints so that they will prosper and be blessed in every way. Now the Lord designates some of his most competent leaders to organize companies of around a hundred families each. Then they are to appoint leaders over each company as presidents, captains of hundreds, captains of fifties, and captains of tens. Let my servants Ezra T. Benson and Erastus Snow organize a company. And let my servants Orson Pratt and Wilford Woodruff organize a company. Also, let my servants Amasa Lyman and George A. Smith organize a company and appoint presidents and captains of hundreds and of fifties and of tens. And let my servants that have been appointed go and teach this my will to the saints, that they may be ready to go to a land of peace. All of those in responsible positions are to train those under their direction in the principles and laws of God so that they might minister their various jurisdictions in justice and peace. Go thy way and do as I have told you, and fear not thine enemies, for they shall not have power to stop my work. As the pioneers traveled west, they stayed out of Missouri, where they were threatened with extermination but have traveled to the north through Iowa and what will be Nebraska, Wyoming, and eventually Utah. The Lord assures the pioneers that their enemies cannot destroy them if they proceed on this route. Zion shall be redeemed in mine own due time. Of course, the ultimate aspiration of the saints was to return to Missouri, which had been dedicated to become the ultimate Zion. The Lord counsels them not to concern themselves with Missouri because eventually God's Zion will be established there in his own due time. And if any man shall seek to build up himself and seeketh not my counsel, he shall have no power, and his folly shall be made manifest. Meanwhile, the Lord knows that some will take advantage of the kingdom in the mountains and build up their own kingdom and ignore the interests of the kingdom of God. 
All such individuals are condemned by the Lord. He says they not only will fail, but their follies will ultimately be manifested. The Lord then enumerates basic principles of good neighbors. Seek ye, and keep all your pledges one with another, and covet not that which is thy brother's. Keeping promises and not coveting things which belong to others are two fundamental principles of good neighbors. Keep yourselves from evil to take the name of the Lord in vain. For I am the Lord your God, even the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Even more important, the saints must honor their heavenly Father, to whom they owe their very existence. I am he who led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and my arm is stretched out in the last days to save my people Israel. Just as the Lord saved ancient Israel, so he will save his people in modern times. Now the Lord reminds his modern saints of more good neighbor attributes. He says, Cease to contend one with another. Cease to speak evil one of another. Contention is one of Satan's primary weapons in destroying the unity and peace of families, communities, and nations. Cease drunkenness and let your words tend to edifying one another. The influence of alcohol will lead to contention and provoke rather than edify human relations. If thou borrowest of thy neighbor, thou shalt restore that which thou hast borrowed. And if thou canst not repay, then go straightway and tell thy neighbor, lest he condemn thee. It is elementary in neighborly relations to return that which has been borrowed. If a person has borrowed something and lost it, when he is unable to repay his neighbor for the lost item, then he should talk it over with his neighbor and work out some equitable solution. If thou shalt find that which thy neighbor has lost, thou shalt make diligent search till thou shalt deliver it to him again. In the same spirit, an article which has been found should be returned to the owner, even if a diligent search was required to find the true owner. Thou shalt be diligent in preserving what thou hast, that thou mayest be a wise steward, for it is the free gift of the Lord thy God, and thou art his steward. It is a fundamental principle of God's law that all things really belong to the Lord. This means that whatever a person acquires is the Lord's, and he who possesses it is merely God's steward. If thou art merry, praise the Lord with singing, with music, with dancing, and with a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. When the movie came out on the life of Brigham Young, some people were offended because the Mormon pioneers danced and sang right along with opening and closing prayers. This verse contains the formula of expressing happiness in a manner which is pleasing to the Lord. If thou art sorrowful, call on the Lord thy God with supplication that your souls may be joyful. Of course, there are times of deep sorrow, and this verse says that on such occasions we should talk to the Lord, and his Spirit will talk back to us so that we will feel joy even in a time of sorrow. Fear not thine enemies, for they are in mine hands, and I will do my pleasure with them. 
The Lord tells the saints to be assured that their enemies are in God's hands, and no matter how oppressive they may seem, they are in God's hand, and His justice will eventually work to the satisfaction of the saints. My people must be tried in all things, that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them, even the glory of Zion. And he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. At the same time, the Lord wants to remind us that the second estate is where his choicest spirits are learning how to be tried in all things. This is so that they will be prepared to receive the glory of Godhood and know how to manage the affairs of Zion. Only then can the saints be worthy of the blessings that God has in store for them. Let him that is ignorant learn wisdom by humbling himself and calling upon the Lord his God, that his eyes may be opened, that he may see, and his ears opened, that he may hear. The Lord says in the 84th section that the church is under condemnation because the saints have taken lightly many of the precious truths he has revealed in the scriptures. As a result, some of the most precious parts of the Book of Mormon are being withheld until the saints have become more diligent students and earnestly want more of the scriptures revealed. For my spirit is sent forth into the world to enlighten the humble and contrite and to the condemnation of the ungodly. One of the greatest achievements is to learn how to study under the guidance of the Spirit so that the hidden treasures of the Scriptures can be illuminated in the mind with a testimony and understanding of their truthfulness. Thy brethren have rejected you and your testimony, even the nation that has driven you out. The Lord says their fellow citizens of the United States have rejected the testimony of the saints who have humbly explained to them concerning the restoration of the gospel. Instead of rejoicing over this new knowledge, they have cast the saints out of their midst. They have not only murdered the Lord's messengers of the restoration, but shed innocent blood which cries from the ground for vengeance. And now cometh the day of their calamity, even the days of sorrow like a woman that is taken in travail, and their sorrow shall be great unless they speedily repent, yea, very speedily. For they killed the prophets and them that were sent unto them, and they have shed innocent blood which crieth from the ground against them. Therefore marvel not at these things, for ye are not yet pure. Ye cannot yet bear my glory, but ye shall behold it if ye are faithful in keeping all my words that I have given you, from the days of Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to Jesus and his apostles, and from Jesus and his apostles to Joseph Smith, whom I did call upon by mine angels, my ministering servants, and by mine own voice out of the heavens, to bring forth my work. The Lord says the saints should not be so amazed that the Lord has allowed these terrible things to happen, but that is because they are not yet pure, 
and they are not ready for the great blessings which will come upon them when they are worthy of his glory. The saints must be faithful to study and comprehend the gospel, which has now been revealed from Adam to Joseph Smith. The saints have been ministered to by angels from heaven and by the voice of Jesus Christ himself. Which foundation he did lay and was faithful, and I took him to myself. Joseph Smith was supremely faithful in laying the foundation for the kingdom of God. Now God has taken Joseph unto himself. Many have marveled because of his death, but it was needful that he should seal his testimony with his blood, that he might be honored and the wicked might be condemned. Some of the saints were perplexed that God would allow his prophet to be slain by his enemies. Nevertheless, it was essential that his testimony should be sealed by his blood. He will be honored for his mighty mission while the wicked will be condemned. Have I not delivered you from your enemies, only in that I have left a witness of my name? Jesus reminds the saints that he has delivered them from their enemies and left their enemies with the testimony of God's prophet. Now therefore, hearken, O ye people of my church, and ye elders, Listen together. You have received my kingdom. The important thing to remember is that the kingdom of God has been restored, and it is in their midst. Be diligent in keeping all my commandments, lest judgments come upon you, and your faith fail you, and your enemies triumph over you. So no more at present. Amen and Amen. So the final word of the Lord is to be faithful in keeping the commandments so that God's judgments will not come upon them. Furthermore, it will make them strong in the face so that their testimonies will not fail and their enemies will not triumph over them. The Lord said that this is enough for the present. Amen and amen. If you are enjoying this podcast with W. Cleon Skousen, you might enjoy his lecture recordings while at Brigham Young University, found at skousenlibrary.com.